This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Selling players on new settings. Breton folklore. Bad guy versus bad guy. And Cold War psychic warfare. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books, Play for Players, Run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. So, folks, uh, we're gathering here in the uh, gaming hut, and this time, instead of the rumble of, of one or two dice or the clatter of uh, a mere uh, several miniatures, uh, we are hearing in, in a vast echoing cavern the uh, sounds of a dwarven miniatures army being uh, assembled because it's the day before Gen Con, and we're in the Embassy Suites Hotel together recording this episode, and... Ken, we noticed something about the hotel when we arrived yesterday. Yes, uh, we went into the hotel, and this is just a safety tip for you travelers. If the place you're going into is covered in plastic tarps, <laughs> make sure that you have not offended anyone with a colorful nickname. <laughs> and if you, it turns out you haven't, Robin and I checked back and forth, yeah, yeah. went through our contacts, you know, called a guy we know, can't name any names here, but we know him, and he, he's a guy. And uh, turns out we were cool. And it also turns out that the Embassy Suites is under renovation. Uh, there are men with hammers uh, running all over the place, and this is pre-cosplay. Yes. Or it is super convincing cosplay. They are LARPing. It may be the, uh, rebuilding the, the, the a hotel. Uh, Mario Brothers Live game. Yes. So if you are running a hotel and uh, you think, gosh, the busiest week of tourist season is coming up, maybe we should renovate the hotel. I guess then you have uh, done better on Hotel Management 101 than other hotels we are not at liberty to name now. We were going to record in our hotel room, but uh, there was whirring and banging, and I said, well, at least there aren't power tools yet. Yes, so, and there was a, there, there's a heck of a mallet. Yes. There was a, a, I would say, in D&D terms, a maul was being wielded next door, which would have been you know, useful audio for uh, Ken and Robin, you know, a hoplology hut, if we ever did that. It was but a plus two, for sure. In this particular case, not so much. Right. Uh, so, as you uh, hear this recording, if there are uh, infelicities or the sounds of girders being dropped, uh, you will know what happened. And as the rest of the season goes by and we start to drop in the, the uh, interviews that we're going to record uh, later today, you may again return to this exciting new audio environment. Environments, besides, let's talk about the environment of the genre 
or setting of your game, uh, Alexandria Perman, Patreon backer Alexandria Perman, asks, do you have any advice for convincing players to try a game set in a genre or historical setting they are unfamiliar with? Uh, Ken, uh, you have your a group of home players who mm -hmm. uh, they know what they're getting. Yes, they have they have bought in. They are not only uh, running in a Ken Height run game. They are also many of them University of Chicago graduates, and therefore admitting unfamiliarity is like <laughs> they would have to cut off their pinky <laughs> the if I shame. suggested a uh, historical setting that they claim to be unfamiliar with. So when it's like. How about Hellenistic Sicily, uh, say, 270s B.C.? Everyone's like, yeah, that sounds cool. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I'm totally familiar with Sound that. of Wikipedia being opened covertly <laughs> on phones. Right. So uh, if you can inculcate the selflessness and moral quality of a University of Chicago graduate in your players... <laughs> and then train problem, them up for 20 years. And then train them for 20 years. You do not years, have this problem. Your but, problems are solved. But Alexandra does not have this option. Right. And perhaps neither do you, our beloved uh, audience. I guess the way that you begin by doing it first is to make sure you have the trust of your players in the first place. Because if they can't trust you to have run Traveler or F20 or Call of Cthulhu or whatever else it is, uh, fairly and interestingly, and not get bogged down in setting detail, then they're not going to trust you to run Warring States China or uh, Medieval Switzerland or anything else without getting bogged down in detail. And so you have to have, you've got to have a track record. You can't just sort of walk in and, and on your players' uh, heads, just dump all the responsibility. You got to, uh, you know, step up. Right. Uh, and the next step, then after that, uh, you, of course, uh, uh, Alexandria and our listeners have established trust because uh, they are uh, fervent listeners to the show and, and have been doing nothing but good gaming for in, five years now. Right. Yeah. So the next step, then, I think, is to uh, pitch them in such a way that they get to imagine what it is that they're doing, so that when you are describing the setting of, you know, it's Hellenistic Greece. You don't start by, and Hellenistic Greece had this political system, and uh, here was their set of religious practices, and, uh, oh, here's this really interesting ship design that you'll want to know about, all about. That, of course, makes it sound uh, daunting, and it may even be that your interest in Hellenistic Greece is not necessarily the same as theirs. So uh, what you should do is describe the various cool things that they get to do in whatever setting or genre it is. So it's like, oh, it's a, uh, you know, uh, cyberpunk in in the uh, far future where everyone is a mutant. So you say, oh, well, you're uh, you're crazy mutants, and you're uh, jacking into the universal uh, biosphere and altering people's ge genetic uh, codes, and then uh, after that you'll be on the uh, run from the uh, the cloaked faceless masters, and you know, describe and obviously pick things that you know they will find fun because if and and if you can't pick a thing in this setting that you know that your players whose tastes you're familiar with will enjoy perhaps there's a genuine disconnect so if they are a group that likes to you know have bar fights and and set things on fire and your setting is well it's a really it's like a jean le carré spy novel except uh set in an alternate reality where everyone is a uh, sentient poodle there may be too much buy-in that you're asking for. Tinker, Taylor, soldier, good boy. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, 13 out of 10 yes. would, would betray. Right. George Smiley must determine which of them is not a good boy. <laughs> I want to I see that now. Anyway. Uh, well, uh, we, we would play that yeah, game. Yeah, we would play that game, but, at least but the, until we ran out of jokes. About the dog jokes. Good boy. Yeah. I the, think we would yes. go for a while, but, but we digress. But we do run the very grave risk of digressing. 
unlike uh, John Le Carre. So the other thing that you do, in addition to sort of giving them the sort of the high concept and selling them on the core activity, is you provide flair, right? And so it's not just that you're in uh, the Hellenistic Mediterranean. Uh, there are war elephants around. Oh, I saw Lord of the Rings. I think war elephants are cool. And uh, it's not necessarily just that you're in uh, warring states China. You're like, oh, here you can use Taoist magic. And everyone's like, Taoist magic? Tell me more. I know all about regular old magic, but I'm, I'm intrigued by your talk. Or whatever it is. You, you pick out a, a, a shiny thing. If you were writing the game supplement, what would be on the cover? What would be on the cell text on the back? Pick that element out. Often, there is a movie Ideally, a good movie. Let's all pray. But one set in the era that you want to, to, to convey or to, to take part in, and you can watch that movie as a little as an activity. And then when people are like super excited right. by the masked archers, you're like, we could we could be in that game, facing down those masked. I, I mean, commanding those masked, masked archers. If it's an obscure movie, uh, send them a link to the YouTube trailer. Exactly right. And then that is a a way to maybe get a sense of buy-in because if they've sat there and watched your exciting. A pulse-pounding Korean Robin Hood movie, and they come out and say, "Well, that was all right." You're like, "Maybe we can't run a game <laughs> set in uh, declining Silla period Korea, and we have to come up. I have to sort of give up my dream yeah. and wait for them to slowly come around and just seed Korean awesomeness into other games that I run until I have built up a taste for it." Now, I suppose the whole idea of a trailer is if you. If you really want to be a keener about this and also make them feel implicitly guilty about all the work you're putting in, <laughs> is uh, to take a simple uh, video editing uh, program, uh, one that will just allow you to put in stills and put uh, music under it, and uh, get some thrilling uh, music. Of course, you're not putting this uh, available to the public, so uh, nobody's going to be too worried about copyright clearance. And uh, Carmina Brana's public domain, I'm yes, sure. It, you can use that. I'm uh, sure you can find a Carmina Brana. Uh, or, uh, you know, the something by it, like a Yugoslavian state orchestra, so yeah. no one can even sue you. <laughs> uh, the, the ode to joy, uh, depending right. on what it is that you're doing. But what, whatever form of music suits the genre, of course, uh, you know, if, you're, if you are a super stickler of a paper, uh, copyright and you're doing cyberpunk, there's somebody on SoundCloud has solved your problem for you. And then just drop in inspiring images because uh, visuals and music uh, carry an emotional weight that you're... Uh, holding up the game book and saying, can we play this next week, um, may not uh, convey. Another uh, thing that you can do is come up with a, a killer opener. Think of it as a pilot, right? You're shooting the pilot, so it's like, give me one session to sell you. And if you don't buy it after one session, then that's fine. We, we took our shot, we missed, we'll move on. And then in that one session, use everything that you know to make a gripping, exciting game don't end the direct plot, I think, on a cliffhanger, because that's a jerk move. But leave a larger question in the story that they're like, oh, we solved the problem of the missing emeralds or whatever, but now I'm really curious as to what Mazaran was up to, because he was sneaking around like a sneaky guy. Maybe we should go back and, and run more stuff in uh, late 17th century Paris or whatever it is. And, uh, and then the, you've sort of got the players, they're not making a commitment of months or years spent in an era or a genre they're not familiar with. They've just committed to one game night. And that's pretty. That's an easy sell. You can usually sell people on that. Yeah. And uh, as you design that, then design it not just to 
even less to design it to be the introduction to the setting, uh, have a piece of candy for each one of your players. Yes. So if you uh, know that one of the players who's particularly averse to new things is the one who always wants to have a fight where they get to hit somebody with a hammer, uh, make sure that he, uh, that character gets a hammer and someone to hit with it. If someone always wants to you know, make sure that they're the... Uh, sneaking around character, make sure there's some sneaking to do. Or uh, if they are the uh, wizard who always wants to go and investigate something in the in the tower, usually in your D&D game, well, in your, uh, you know, Hellenistic Jean Lecrae thing, they are the expert who gets to go into the mysterious library and look for things that you know will light them up and put them in there like a, a trail of candy corn uh, to lead them to be engaged uh, with the uh, setting. And then, uh, as Ken suggests, uh, unanswered questions, something that will make them want to come back for more. But just uh, give them all the cool moments, let them have upbeat stuff, even if it's a horror game, uh, you know, really uh, let everybody be awesome in a way that relates to the coolness of the genre or the setting and that uh, you know, assuming you and, and if you can't even get them to play a one shot of a new thing, uh, and there are certainly players who, you know, I went to all the trouble of memorizing all these monsters in this particular game. Uh, but I, if I'm not encountering, you know, a seventh level Medusa today, I'm I'm out. But uh, in general, uh, you know, if you have people who are willing to go for anything. Uh, they will meet you halfway, and then you can start to work your wiles on them. Another uh, possibility is if you're running a game that allows for planar travel or dream travel or time travel or a dimensional gate or anything like that, and I think I've just described every game, <laughs> have a one session within your campaign that goes into yeah. that world. There's the Lecrae novel where George Smiley goes through the gate and it's all dogs. And it's all dogs, yeah. exactly. Um, uh, the novel, of course, is... Uh, the spy who came in and shook himself real hard. The spy went out into the cold little, very briefly. And, and, then, and then came back, back in and decided he didn't need yeah. to go. The, um, <laughs> and, and, and so you can run the, 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 the pilot episode and think of it as a spinoff. And so it's their familiar characters who they know and love and give them a real reason to go in, not just a stupid MacGuffinry reason. Uh, give them a real reward for the ongoing campaign that they earned by going into your, uh, your your little shadow universe there for a bit. And then you can play it out in the context of their familiar characters that they know and love, and they know that no matter what happens, they get to come back to the familiar world of the circus and 1970s uh, yeah. taught spy thriller action and not have to stay in the strange world of me medieval Korea inhabited entirely by dogs. Yes, you, you wake up with a headache and right. go, well, there were dogs and one yes. of us was Jerry Cornelius. Yes. And, I'm not sure what uh, that was about. Um, oh, it was a stealth pilot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a show we were watching. And now we're in that show next episode. Right. Um, and, and again, I mean, any Supers game can do this. Most F20 games can do something like this. And you may find that trying to justify why there's a connection between the 17th century Congo and your F20 game makes your F20 game feel realer and more interesting because you've added an unexpected dimension to it. And it's like, 
Are we just a dream that a that a Luanda sorcerer is having? Are, is, is that what's going on? Is there a connection? Is there a real gate to this other world where magic doesn't work, but we're still like super powered because right. we're full of the uh, residual mana? I mean, what's what's the story with with this connection? And maybe that'll make your world feel realer because you've added uh, a buttress to it that they might not have seen coming. Or you may just have a fun time flying around as the as the Justice Society and beaten on um, uh, uh, Korean uh, martial arts goons. Who can say? But, uh, you know, and, and as they go into this uh, world and meet these characters, you can subtly introduce these four to six really cool characters who they, they help them out and they seem to have all these awesome powers and stuff or, you know, have whatever the hooks are that uh, it's like, and then... You know, so who in this world do you want to play? Yes. Who I've carefully set up to force you. At, to at the end, they're like, I somehow feel that we might meet again, strange travelers from another world. <laughs> no, I no, feel our, a our, kinship to you. Yes. Uh, almost a brotherhood. Yes, almost like we were played by the same actor. Right, almost as though we shared a soul. <laughs> well, on, uh, on that note, uh, I think we have... Uh, shared uh, all the advice that we have on this topic and then can uh, trip along soulfully to our next segment. Hey Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pograin Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh... The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. The garlandings of laurels, the flames on the altar, the lowering countenances of the god, and the strange faces peeping in from the bowls of the trees tell us that we have entered the mythology hut, and the keening of flutes and the patter of mist on the leaves at Broceliand tell us we are entering not just any old mythology hut, but the Breton mythology hut of good old Brittany. Brittany, of course, as we all know, is a Celtic land settled by refugees from Cornwall and, and Britain during the tumultuous time of the of the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, they probably intermixed with the possibly pre-Gaulish or possibly Gaulish inhabitants of the peninsula, making one of those Macedoines from which right. great mythologies spring. Robin, you in a uh, pursuit of a game that I don't know if you've plugged on the show yet. Uh, could that be the Yellow King role-playing game? It's still available for pre-order. The Yellow King role-playing game is still available. It doesn't sound familiar, it doesn't but sound familiar. maybe I'll listen to some back episodes and see if you've mentioned it. Right. So the, the word that we have uh, conspicuously failed to mention so far is France. France, uh, Brittany yes. is a region 
region of uh, France had, as Ken suggests, uh, experienced uh, Celtic migration. And then when they arrived in France, they had Teutons to deal with. They started out in conflict with the Franks, and uh, they quickly uh, Christianized. And so uh, Brittany is uh, within uh, France the sort of haunted place where the weird stuff happens, where the... Uh, where the it's fa- France is Transylvania. Yes, where, where the fairies still dwell. And, in fact, Robert uh, Chambers, in addition to the yellow sign stories, wrote a couple of uh, stories, some closer to kind of the just straight-up fairy tale, uh, and others with sort of a horror tinge that are set in uh, Brittany. So one of the stretch goals of uh, the Yellow King Kickstarter was to uh, introduce a yellow king-ized version of uh, Celtic Breton mythology into the game. And so I've been, of course, researching it, as one does when one promises to fulfill a a stretch goal. And it's a really interesting drift, shall we say, Mm -hmm. on straight-up Celtic mythology because uh, there's all of these other cultural elements in there. And also it sort of existed in a kind of isolation. It's a relatively small region, which means that the... And before they put roads in, you pretty much couldn't go there except by ship. Right. And so uh, there... The myths exist in a sort of a earlier kind of, I wouldn't say proto-state, but they haven't been as elaborately worked so that a lot of them just seem weird. Yeah. They're yeah. not just unfamiliar, but also that some of the stories will like, I didn't think this was what was being set up. Yeah, they, they didn't even have the degree of rationalization that the Christian oh. uh, monks gave the Irish legends or that Snorri gave the Norse legends. And certainly they didn't have the thousand years of civilized retconning yes. from Hesiod to Ovid that have kind of, I don't want to say ruined, but let's say sanded all the rough edges off Greco-Roman mythology. But these, this is sort of in the, in the raw. Yes. Right? Yeah. And uh, the f- first thing that struck me is it's like, wow, if, if Gary Gygax had read uh, some more uh, Breton mythology in, in 1977, we would all own miniatures of lions with Medusa snake uh, manes and uh, wasps with diamond stings. And the, the imagery is really weird and, and uh, cool in a very role-playing F-20 sort of way. Right, so it's, yeah. It's actually the, it's, it's the F-20 region of, of Europe. Right, it's, it's where the owlbears want. I actually ran an Ars Magica game set in Brittany. Uh, with a great deal of, of Breton uh, folklore. And so the, the realm of fairy was the realm of the Corrigan, the, the yeah. fairies of, of Brittany. And so we had, uh, we had a great deal of fun. And my, uh, one of my players, as is my habit, uh, was, is a, was a linguistics major then, is now a research librarian, and is, uh, was, said, I'm playing the guy who's touched by the elves. And I said, well, guess what you're also doing? You're playing the guy who's looking up all the Breton folklore. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be doling it out to the players so yeah. that I can concentrate on the other half of that. So we had uh, probably about a year and a half of, of great, misty, frico adventures. So I can recommend it as an Ars Magica setting, if nothing else. And obviously, since the legends come down, uh, certainly to the late 19th century, when they're being collected by French folklorists during that great urge to nationalize everyone's folklore, uh, and then I suppose you, you got, you've probably still got Breton folklore now, although it may be as touristy as the Pennsylvania Dutch is. I don't know to what extent putting in the superhighways of ruined Breton folklore. I mean, the Standing Stones are still standing, so you can still go out to yes. Kimper and some of the other weird uh, Karnak, the, 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 the great uh, uh, rows of megaliths, and yes. have all manner of... And, and these aren't just any Standing Stones. These are Standing Stones that 
every uh, either year or a hundred years, and I would actually, if I lived near them, I would hope for every hundred years. Yeah, right. But uh, it is said that they uh, get up and roll down the hill down to the uh, river or nearby lake in order to take a drink. Yep. Uh, and uh, if it, and of course, naturally, uh, depending on the story, there might be a, a hoard of treasure lying under the megalith that you might just be able to get at while they're down there getting a drink. But the thing is, uh, if you aren't fast enough or you're betrayed by the craven scoundrel who's shown up to try to throw you into the hole left by the megalith where the treasure is and grab the treasure, <coughs> you may be crushed to death when they come rolling inexorably back. Right. Uh, but of course, uh, the, uh, the, the good Christian character uh, succeeds and throws the bad guy into the hole, and the bad guy gets crushed. And the way you can tell is that he's the one who survived. <laughs> so <laughs> he must have been the good Christian character. Exactly. Yeah, I, I didn't deliberately go and throw my <laughs> It's odd. In he, there. he showed no particular sign of piety before, but mm -hmm. he did come back alone from the misty hilltop on um, a Rollright Day, so right. I guess he must have been a good Christian after all. I was wrong. Yes. I'll be the bigger Breton. I'll yes. admit I was wrong. And uh, these are... Uh, these are tales that often have fairies in them, but they're not children's tales. No. And so often the, the happy ending is that the malefactors are caught and thrown on the fire by the king. Yay! They're burned to death. They're thrown into an oven. Uh, on the topic of burning people to death uh, and kings, I should mention at this stage, because we're going to be reminded that we didn't mention it, <laughs> but Gilles Derez, the great bluebeard himself, mm -hmm. serial killer, knight errant, and fun-loving black magician, was, of course, a the, the Duke of Brittany. He ran Brittany, and uh, he may have been Bre Breton uh, by uh, descent. So lots more possibilities. Uh, in addition to fairy lore, you have your Satanry and your Diabolism, in which, in which context, perhaps, we should mention the Anku. Yes, this is the, the spirit of uh, death that uh, uh, rattles down the, uh, the country lane uh, looking for those who are uh, supposed to die, and it's uh, usually uh, conceived of as a, a woman, and, uh, but it's your, uh, otherwise you're kind of your black reaper, or sorry, your grim reaper character in the black cloak, and uh, as is often the case that the uh, details are downscaled, so uh, unlike other deaths, they're not riding in on a magnificent charger, but she's sort of trundling in on a hay cart uh, coming to get you. And, and I have read that the squeal of railway wheels is known as the wheelbarrow of the Anku, uh, I guess uh, she went for higher transportation options later on. Right, and, yeah. Yeah. But I, I like the notion that, first of all, you've got the myth coming down to railway times. Mm -hmm. Second of all, that it's not just the squeal of railway wheels, but it's the wheelbarrow of the Anku. Like, she's just sort of prosaically coming along yeah. to gather up all the dead people in her wheelbarrow. And I love the notion that it's connected to the railway because, of course, you know what happened in misty, remote Brittany when they built in the railways. Everyone got hit by trains. <laughs> And so to attach your, by this time, maybe 1,500-year-old personification of death to the railway and to connect it with that, not the whistle, that's for boring old American death legendary, yes, exactly. to the squealing wheels to make that the sound of the Anku, that's just great. That's that's A-plus a folkloring, uh, Brittany, so well done. The Corrigan uh, may refer in general to fairy folk, or it may refer specifically to a sort of siren-like uh, female entity who uh, draws you in uh, to your doom and death, of course, because you're a good peasant Christian and she uh, uh, twists you all around. She's notable by her uh, red glowing eyes. But sometimes uh, the legends... 
uh, kind of become more romantic. So the Breton version of the Merlin and Nimue legend is the legend of Merlin and Vivian. And he is traveling through Brittany on some task for Arthur to find uh, a, you know, some MacGuffin that they need for the season three climax. And uh, <laughs> uh, he runs into Vivian, who's this uh, beautiful uh, uh, sorceress. And, you know, he's a sorcerer, and in this context, uh, he's a good sorcerer. So here, so she. And they just fall in love. And uh, she says, well, you'll come back two more times to me, and then, uh, you know, I will wrap you in my magic. And he's like, oh, well, you're, okay, yeah, sure. And so they they do a long-distance relationship for a little while, I guess. And yeah, then he comes right. back, so you know, season five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, then, uh, and then finally, at the end of the career, when you, you know, you need him off the show, for the final climax where Arthur is going to, to die and you can't have in them, him being the deus ex machina, he just returns to her and then, so what is your final magic? And so my final magic is that we will love and live together in perpetuity in this castle that I've made for us and we'll just have a perfect love together. And he goes, yeah, of course. Yeah. And Merlin's entitled to that. He's done yeah. his deal. He's, do, he's done his retirement. He's, he's, yeah. yeah. He, he's, he, his he, pension he, vested. So in this version, Merlin gets to live happily ever after. He wasn't entranced by some... Betrayer. B- betrayer and wretch and, and seducer. Uh, that's just the story that everybody in Camelot tells when it's like, hey, where's Merlin with the magic? Oh, uh, that guy? Yeah, it's like, ah, that son of a gun. Oh, don't be blaming Merlin. It's that woman of his put him up to it. Yeah, it's that Nimue. I don't know, it's Vivian. She's great if you only met her. Yeah, she's terrific. She's no Yoko. That's right, the Yoko of the round table (laughs) is Nimue. Is Nimue, yeah. Absolutely, that's terrific. Um, she wanted him to get sole songwriting credit, and that escalated from there. Right. If, if you're looking for the um, uh, for another hook for your for your uh, Corrigans, uh, as they uh, as, as Robin says, there's uh, the possibility of it being a singular uh, character, uh, being a race of characters, and there is the compromise where there are nine Corrigans and they're just <laughs> super busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's only nine of them, and so the notion of uh, nine uh, bilocative super fairy goddesses, that, I think, has some juice for your F-20. Is like, oh, it's one of the nine Corrigans, and that can be your one unique thing. In uh, 13th Ages, you're the daughter of one of the nine Corrigans, and so you get to call on your your mom to help out, but maybe your, your mom has been fighting with one of the other right. Corrigans, and so problems could have ensued. Uh, the Corrigans also, uh, will be glad to know, haunt the Dolmens. So if you're going around messing with the megaliths, looking for that treasure, and it's not roll right day, yeah. Corrigans may get yeah. you. And uh, I guess the, uh, the main thing we got to cover before we get into this is the, the lost city of Is. Yes. Or Keras, as it is sometimes yes. uh, characterized. And again, there, it hasn't been regularized into one version. So there's the uh, version with the, there's the good king uh, with the evil daughter, and the king's name is uh, Graydon. And, uh, and the daughter is Dahut. Dahut. Uh, sometimes he is a sort of a more leer figure who is uh, complicit in the downfall of the city. And the reason it is it doesn't sink beneath the waves per se is that it's already beneath the waves and protected by this elaborate system of dikes. Right. And this, then, this huge wall around yeah. it. Yeah. And then uh, the ultimately uh, Dahut gets up to so much evil that the uh, the dikes are neglected. So this is uh, obviously a uh, metaphor about infrastructure maintenance and then finally uh, and in some versions of it he 
you know, he still loves to hoot, and he's riding away from the scene, <coughs> and uh, uh, she's clinging to the horse, and either he finally has to kick her off because she's trying to pull him off, or she falls off to her death and is uh, sunken in the city. Uh, and Gradon is also sometimes a, uh, a Bacchus figure. There's other myths in which he is the bringer of, of the vine mm-hmm. to uh, Brittany. And so uh, now when I start to yellow king eyes this, it'll be a prior manifestation of Carcosa into the world where you know there was a Carcosa spire and what people are uh, remembering poorly is the previous reign of the Yellow King and Casilda uh, uh, or Camilla and uh, that's what uh, caused the city to sink beneath the waves and perhaps as reality starts to fragment more maybe that city might just raise back up again and that would probably be bad news. Or maybe uh, the waves that are rising outside our own city as it slowly becomes Carcosis. Yes, right? exactly. And yeah. uh, we ourselves are maybe fumbling at the locks to let our lover the devil in just like right. Dahut did. Uh, Poole Anderson, I should mention, did a historicized version of the East legend if you're looking to set something in King Arthur times. The Chronicles of East, I think is what it's called. It's by Poole Anderson. Poole Anderson and East will we'll pull it up on your on your Amazon, I'm sure. If you like Paul Anderson, you'll like this. If you like uh, sort of medieval adventure novels, you'll like this. It's it it, it uh, you know it, it's a tetralogy, so it'll uh, scratch that itch for a long damn fantasy novel. But it's set in something like Earth, so nothing wrong with that. And obviously, also there's lots of other uh, uses of East throughout uh, legend and literature that you can tie it into, even if you don't want to tie it into the King in Yellow. There's lots of more possibilities. Plus, of course, the whole connection between East and Atlantis or East and, uh, you know, any number of doomed cities before and since. An example of how the, the stories are uh, not worked to the degree that you would expect, there's a story called The, the Magic Rose, and there's a, a good peasant who's in love with a, a good wife, and uh, she dies, but he has a magic item. There's Magic items are really big in these stories, very high-powered magic items uh, for, the, for the character levels. And uh, <laughs> well, that's why you don't give him out because exactly. it always ends in disaster. It does always end in disaster. But in this case, uh, his uh, beautiful wife dies, but he has a magic rose. He can go back to her grave, and it has a free resurrection spell in it. And so he resurrects her, and then a bunch of other confusing things happen, and he has to go to Paris to meet his brother. <laughs> <laughs> there's a property dispute, and by the time that he's come back, she has married some other guy. Who's con- there's a lot of conniving and scheming in these stories, and she no longer recognizes him. Uh, it seems like a bit of a plot conceit, but let's, let's Paris has that effect on okay. some people. So you figure from that setup that this is about how he is going to reclaim his uh, wife, and then he will finally identify himself, and uh, you know, like. Odysseus order will be restored in the house and the scandal will be cast free but no he goes off and falls in love with another elf queen and she's really the one for him and uh, in the end his first wife uh, he gets killed and resurrected by this other guy who he gave a flower to and 2,000 ducats in order to finance his return the guy spends all the 2,000 ducats and then he feels guilty and comes (laughs) back okay I guess I resurrect you and and then he goes off and meets this entirely different magical woman, falls in love with her, and the first wife, along with this scheming uh, uh, guy who cuckolded him in the first place, they're thrown in the fire at the end. Yay! And this is not what we think of as a a, a single stream story. With this is this is what happens when Thomas Mallory doesn't take you in hand yes, exactly. and fix your legend for you. Right, and 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 so. Uh, 
consequently, it sort of feels like magic resurrecting roses behind it. It's like, this sounds like something that really happened in the village to a bunch of people. It also sounds like Gilgamesh to me, right? Because that's the flower of, of eternal youth that Gilgamesh goes down to the bottom of the sea to get. And so you're, you've got a sunken city, you've got the flower of eternal youth, so we have a Sumerian connection to East if we want it. If we can seize it. Exactly. Uh, well, uh, now that we have Gilgamesh beginning to enter uh, Brittany, I think we may have uh, uh, exceeded the bounds of uh, this particular mysterious fairy landscape that is the mythology hut and must continue on to the next one. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers, exactly like... Ole Toivanen. Pedro Garcia. Stephen Hammond. Derek Heimforth. And Todd W. Olson. The chutter of IBM Selectric Keys, the gurgle of mid-priced bourbon, and the rain of curses rising to the heavens tell us once more we have entered the sacred precincts over which are embossed a sign reading How to Write Good. And in the How to Write Good hut, we have worked very long, we've worked very hard, our manuscript is assembled, we have given it to our trusted subordinate to take off to the publishers, we've found that he is stopped for a donut, and we murder him in the street because we hate him so much. <laughs> Was that interesting? Was that compelling? Perhaps, but perhaps not. Robin, right. what do you think about betraying each other when villains and or authors do it? I'm totally tired of the, the client who screws you over. Yeah. But I'm even more tired, even more tired. of stories that uh, fill the uh, allotted time that they feel they need to uh, fill and extend the plot line with a whole bunch of stuff about the bad guys betraying each other. Ah. So uh, you have your main villain and you have your secondary villain and you have this thing where he's going to war with this other gang and he kills these people and very often it has nothing to do with the main storyline. It really is just spinning. And so if you're watching uh, any kind of a sort of a hero story where there's an antagonist and there's a lot of time spent on secondary antagonist battling the main antagonist, chances are the truck has 
fallen off the road and they're just spinning their wheels. And so uh, even things that I really like, like Daredevil and uh, the Luke Cage show, spent a lot of time on the underworld politics, the gangland right. stuff, a lot of which you didn't really need. Well, I mean, I think that in fairness to that trope, like many tropes, it can be done well or poorly. Of course, yes. And you can do, for example, first season of Daredevil, which is the parallel creation of Kingpin and Daredevil, you needed that inter-gang warfare to let you know that the Kingpin is the real deal, that he's rising to power. And you have to tell that story. That's part of it. Now, in another uh, show that uh, might take place on some island uh, in a fantasy realm, uh, with or without dragons... There is indeed exactly that, that it's, it's endless machinations just for the sake of filling space and time because you're not advancing any story, you're not even building character because you're wasting that character only to play against another character and, uh, and, and buff them before dying. Yeah, uh, in, in general, and, any and show... By, and by the, by the way, dying far too late. So, right. Well, any show where there's a big sudden clearing of the board, the board should not have been that should not have been that cluttered to begin um, with. And and Gotham, for example, it's even more sort of in the foreground that the bad guys betraying each other is almost sort of more the show than the heroes overcoming uh, obstacles. But even so, uh, you can see that there's a lot of plot development that is just done and undone. And so the question uh, then becomes how to do this well. Right. right? Because and, as we know from history and current events, real uh, bad guys do in fact conspire against each other and Indeed. royal and betray and, and act And poorly. often this is our greatest hope is that yes. they'll kill each other off. Is, is that um, uh, Himmler and Heydrich will be fighting over who gets to run the SS and we, our heroes, will be able to sneak through the, the, the interstices in the monolithic crack in the dark side. Right, because this, this segment is not called Don't Do That, it's right. called How to, how to Write, write good. good. And so the one version of this trope that I think is almost always uh, ill-executed is the bad guy demonstrates how terrifying he is by immediately killing one of his henchmen. And we've just yeah, seen that right, yeah. so many times. And it's so terribly unrealistic. I yes. mean, even, even, and let's take the baddest of guys and the henchmanliest killers. You look at Vlad Tepes, there's no stories of him killing henchmen just to prove he's badass. Hitler didn't even kill henchmen. To prove, and when Hitler killed his henchmen, there was a reason and it was set up and it was a long thing. He's not just sitting there saying, what? How do you not destroy the British on the beach? Yeah. I shoot you, Guderian. Yeah. That doesn't happen. It, <laughs> you have momentarily you know, on the only And way. when your villain is less realistic than Hitler, <laughs> that's maybe a sign to dial it back a notch. Yes, and that's unrealistic in so many ways. Mob bosses don't do that. Nobody does that. No. Because it's hard to hire. Exactly. And all the other guys in the room, it's supposed to be, well, they're all terrified of him and they will follow him. No. But the reason they're with him is they're also bad guys. Yes. And he's paying them relatively well. Right. And, 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 and it's, uh, it's an interesting point that... When you get a bad guy who you think might do that, might be so unhinged as to do that, the first response of all bad guys is to team together and kill that guy. Because that's what happened to Beria. Right after Stalin dies, Beria, the head of the KGB, uh, which isn't the KGB then, don't send me angry letters, I know what it is. Um, Beria, the, the head of the, of, the, of the Soviet security state, they're thinking, oh, he's going to be the next premier because he's the only guy with all the power. So before he becomes premier, let's all agree to kill him. And sure enough, they uh, set up a meeting in the Politburo. And this is when your specter moment happens, right? They set up the meeting in the Politburo. Beria walks in. There's no chairs. And he's like, oh. <laughs> and then there are army, not KGB guards at the door. And the army guards take him away, and he's dealt with. 
and it's none of this, you know. He's that, he's that Joe Pesci made right, guy exactly. moment. Exactly. And so the so the point in the story at which the bad guy kills his subordinate to prove that he's serious is the future that is aborted by the real bad guys killing him first. Right. And dramatically, you don't care about the henchman. Right. The henchman's, you know, he's a bad guy too. So uh, if you want to prove that the uh, bad guy is super badass, have him doing something that the audience cares about that you don't want to see done. So, you know, show him in action uh, robbing a bank or, uh, you know, defeating a, a heroic character who the, right. you know, the main character then has to step in for. Or, or have, killing, have him kill a mentor. Right, or, or, or having, have him kill an, an, an innocent who you've come to, to like already. So you can have, you know, this, the, you can still say that you're serious where, you know, you're having this conversation in the CVS or, or the or the drugstore or wherever, and he shoots the drugstore clerk. Yeah. That proves you're serious. The made man's not like, oh, that's a threat to me. I don't work at a drugstore. I'm a made man. But you're like, wow, he's just sociopathic. He's going to just kill people. Now we're taking him seriously. And you have a moral investment because it, you, 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 you know, frankly, the thug probably deserved to die, but that clerk didn't deserve to die. They're just an innocent person. Right. And how to write scenes of, uh, you know, betrayal within the ranks of an organization is uh, the test of any story, which is, does this fit my through line or am I just uh, trying to create space to delay the moment of the actual forward development right. that would actually happen. And that's the difference between the uh, first season of Daredevil, which is, it's a necessary part of the story, and it may or may not have been handled There's still deftly. some particular scenes that yes. aren't super necessary. No, no there, there are bits of it, but the, the, the story of betrayal and, and machination yes. is a core part of the story, and it has to be written well, but it has to be in there. Yes. You can't just begin with Kingpin being Kingpin in the story they wanted to tell. Yeah. I mean, you could have, and, you know, God willing, yeah. someday they will. But you know, uh, cross fingers. But the uh, but but if you're going to tell that story and it's an important part of your story, then it should have a thematic resonance, or it should have some sort of reason why you're invested in this duel between bad guy A and bad guy B, so that when your hero finally meets the ultimate bad guy, it makes a difference which bad guy is in charge. Right. They shouldn't just be interchangeable bad guys. So if like the martial artist kills the psychic. And the hero has been training his whole time to fight the psychic, and he shows up, and now he has to fight the martial artist. That's a story. Now, also, the fact that you're spending a lot of time on what the bad guy is doing in order to keep him alive in the story, as the storytelling jargon goes, is a sign that he is not interacting with the protagonist. Right. Yeah. And so you should have uh, things going on that draw... So that means you've got two parallel stories going on that haven't converged yet. Right. So if you cause the main bad guy to execute his henchman because the protagonist has laid the groundwork for that and made it seem like he betrayed him, that is an interesting situation because right. it's a win for the uh, hero and it's something that uh, means that, he is inter that they're interacting together. But probably the reason you have that scene in there is that you've got the hero off in another parallel track that also isn't developing yet that isn't dealing with your main story or that your uh, antagonist conflict is not hooked in enough to the story about the hero that you want to tell. And so it is uh, not just something to do better, but often a symptom of a uh, diseased plot line uh, that you <laughs> need to uh, give some uh, medicine to, which is go back, uh, look at what the story is that you're telling, and is all of this stuff just a delaying tactic because you don't really have enough forward development 
of the, the character to constitute a, a full story. And that's, in television writing in particular, that is often a problem. That the, a lot of the stuff that you see winds up having no actual final resonance or relevance to the story being told, but is really just there to, you know... Oh, Justify we, hiring that actor. Yeah, we need a scene with this character, but yeah. we don't really have the, the hook to get It's the uh, downside, one of the many downsides of ensemble character shows is you have to find a, a plot line for all of them or else you've wasted all that money. And there aren't that many good plot lines, I'll tell you just right off. Yeah. And so uh, that's why single character or, or duo-focused shows are vastly better structurally because you don't have to keep introducing plot lines that by definition can go nowhere. Um, I think another question that we might uh, talk about, if we've got a bit at the end, is the question of what about... Uh, if you're like finding yourself with more and better ideas for the bad guy and for his bad guy actions, what about flipping it so that it's a Scarface story where it's about a bad guy right. rising to power? That basically is the Dark Knight. It's not a Batman movie, really. It's a Joker movie. Right. And Batman shows up as this sort of uh, foreshadowed deus ex machina at the end. But it's the story of how the Joker rises to power. And when the Joker murders people randomly, it's because he's the Joker. And we know that's going to happen because we've been... We know that the Joker is and the randomness is the whole and point the randomness him. is the whole point of him. So when then can you decide this is actually a story about the villain? Is that a is that you have to make that decision early? You can't make it at the, at the, the make, yeah. Right, you're yeah. telling an antihero story, right? Yeah, and then obviously if the if the if you're telling a story of an antihero, every obstacle he overcomes is by definition relevant right. uh, to the story. And so the I, I guess really the issue we're looking at is whose story are you telling? Right, uh, and uh, if you are uh, telling mainly the story of a uh, traditional protagonist, but also setting up the villain, why are you continuing to go back and visit him in a way that is parallel to rather than intersecting right. uh, with the story? Of the and again, if, when, you, when you look at Dark Knight, he's always intersecting Batman. Batman is always aware that the Joker is rising, yeah. but he's, he's always one step behind. First he underestimates the threat, then he can't deal with the threat. You think he's going to stop the threat with his uh, you know, panopticon, but even that won't do it because the Joker is actually just a chaos actor. He only wants nihilism. And then Batman has to make the moral sacrifice at the end that, that makes that movie good. I mean, the movie was good before. It makes it great. Um, and so your, your, your protagonist or your, 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 your good guy, your force of order, meets your antihero over and over and over. Yeah. And, so it, and, the, and the trouble with uh, a story like that is that you have to make sure that within the world you're putting, that's logical. Yes. And the, in superhero the obstacles movies, have to be strong, that which, makes is, sense. which is hard. Right. But in a serial killer movie, that never happens. No serial killer in the history of serial killing has ever targeted a cop's girlfriend. No. That never happens. Right. Because when a serial killer in the real world uh, comes up against any real force that he hasn't prepared to uh, ambush and waylay, he gets caught because yes. they're not physically... Or, at the very least, he runs far away and yeah. starts up in another city somewhere. Yes. Uh, and, and so, the, you know, the, the Zodiac never, like, targeted cop, an individual cop. He wasn't going after Detective Tashi in the real world. He's sending his messages to the cops and taunting them and doing the, the, the games have begun nonsense that has poisoned the serial killer yeah. thriller forever. But he's not doing any of the dumb things serial killers in bad serial killer shows do. So if you're going to have them intersect with your protagonist, they have to intersect institutionally if it's a, if it's a realistic novel right. or, or meant to feel realistic. 
or you have to move out into the world of opera or gothic or comic books, something that is de deliberately larger than life, so there is a reason for your cop and your and your bad guy to meet, and that's something like your uh, Manhunter. Right, right? You're, which you're, is starting to get us into the fact that most contemporary serial killer stories are really vampire stories, right. which means we've changed the subject to an entirely different one, which means, Ken... It means that we must leave the hut and never return because they're onto us. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we're going to set up another hut in another city. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppet Land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. And the final head of this uh, episode uh, re recorded in this vast cavernous room in the embassy suites uh, in just before the madness of Gen Con begins is a, a chat we had. Can I see mist coming in under the doors of this uh, conference room? And, oh, look, there's our, our friends, the aliens over there sitting in the corner. They've been listening in the whole time. Uh, there's the uh, bug-eyed alien and the Nordic alien, and they're uh, having a really expensive hotel camp kombucha. And uh, so we must be, uh, oh, and there's the UFO that brought them in. We must be in the Elliptony hut. And as is our tradition, uh, when we uh, record here away from our main computers, I've given you a topic that you can do sitting on your head. Uh, and uh, it's one that, this is one of those, hey, why didn't we get to this before topics right. in the Elliptony hut? But uh, we want to look into the history of uh, Cold War psychic Research. So we're, uh, I guess there's some goats over in the corner and we're going to stare at them. Going to stare at them, going to make them nervous, and so, then they're going to die. So, uh, where during the Cold War does uh, one of the uh, intelligence apparati decide, hey, you know what, we might uh, look into mind control as a weapon? Well, we, if, if I am being straight up honest, I say that that begins in 1970 and it begins in the United States when uh, the RAND project, which is a think tank that the government uh, uses for various properties. I'm glad you're going to be honest with us. Right, yes, I am. I'm going to start honest. That's my motto. Um, <laughs> start honest. <laughs> yes. See how that gets uh, you. Future t-shirt, folks. Exactly. Uh, in 1970, the RAND Corporation is tasked to study this because in 1970, a uh, pot boiler of a bestseller emerged called Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain. And it was by Sheila Ostrander and Lynn Schroeder, and they wrote a book that was compiled from 
newspaper reports and tabloid reports and fragmentary bits of evidence and the occasional scientific journal articles that sort of drifted out. And they've painstakingly gathered this morass of work. And like many pioneers in the field of elliptony, they are the true heroes. <laughs> because everyone since them has just ripped off their book. But they actually did the hard work of research and gathering. So Ostrander and Schroeder, I take my hat off to you, metaphorically. Um, and they had assembled from the actual experiments of Semyon Kirlian, who invents Kirlian photography, from the actual existence of the Leningrad Brain Institute to study telepathy, which was established in the 20s. Um, there was another uh, brain institute in Kharkov around that same time. There were, uh, uh, Lunacharsky was a Soviet commissar who was interested because they believed that if you could harness bioelectricity, that would be a faultlessly Marxist way of having woo-woo. Yes. <laughs> And uh, scientific all, woo -woo. all mankind lives for woo-woo uh, because woo-woo is, is the, it's what makes life worth living. It, it's, a, it's an energy field that <laughs> surrounds us, binds us together. It enables may. all manner of rationalization. Exactly. And so to get Marxist woo-woo, you have to make it a property of the electrical field of the body. And so the Soviets had, yes, researched this. We do not know at what point someone said, also, we have to fight a war with Germany. This seems like this should take a back seat. But... What is very likely is that the uh, KGB decided, given that they had this data lying around, rather than continue psychic experimentation, which is, of course, bunk, they said, why don't we pretend we're doing psychic experimentation and use it as, A, a propaganda coup in the third world, and B, a way to mess with the Americans. And goodness knows that's what happened. Because Americans would never respond to Russian uh, disinformation, Ken. That's, 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 that's we've nonsense. We've entered the realm of the improbable. Now, in my heart, this is because maybe they were one had, they had their their second guessers. Their tiger team is like, maybe the Americans don't have UFOs. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we're being messed with. What do the Americans believe in? Woo woo. Let's make up woo woo and say we have woo woo. They wanted to close the woo-woo gap. Right. And so the Rand Corporation prepares this big report on Soviet psychic, you know, sort of the vastly expensive, worst government version of the free market psychic discoveries behind the Iron Curtain. And they release that, and there's testimony in the halls of Congress and this, that, and the other thing. And sure enough, wherever there's government money being wasted, the CIA is jotting on the spot. And so they say, oh, yeah, we can study uh, uh, psychic experimentation. Not a problem. And so they begin a program called Scanate, which is to do remote viewing, by which you uh, have a psychic and you give them coordinates, grid coordinates, and they psychically determine what's at the grid coordinates. And maybe it's a, a crashed UFO, and maybe it's a missile base, and maybe it's, you know, who knows what it could be. Maybe it's a lucrative contract. Maybe it's a lucrative contract to study psychic remote viewing. Who can say? And so the CIA begins a program uh, that begins as Scanate and then becomes uh, Grill Flame and then becomes Center Lane, and then becomes Sunstreak, and eventually... Yes, every one of those is a new contract. Is a new contract, yep. becomes Stargate. The Army briefly gets involved with Gondola, is, which is the Army version, because if the CIA has remote viewing, the Army needs remote viewing. Yep. And there was a... You know, in a way, it's kind of refreshing that the United States Army in the 70s could produce a figure like Colonel Channon, who was the original sweet summer child of military... Intelligence. Yes. And he single-handedly felt that what the army needed was to really get in touch with its inner child. And if it could become whole earth warriors for peace and advancement and uh, yogic, yogic yeah. self-mastery, 
then all the problems would be solved because you could just take the defense budget and turn it into a flower budget. Yes, and as you probably know, listeners, your source for this is John Ronson's The Men Who Stare at Ghosts. Yes, Ronson is the guy who sort of uh, lays out and and sets it uh, as sort of the story of Channon and his quixotic, literally, attempt to remake the United States military-industrial complex in the mold of, say, an Asalan encounter group. He he did... Prepare your readiness against windmills. So there's that. We are we, no giant windmills have attacked America successfully <laughs> since 1973, thanks to the works of Colonel Shannon and his uh, disciples. So there is a CIA program that has a bunch of different names and a bunch of different contractors. They're working mostly through a group called SRI, which is run by uh, uh, shills and con men who uh, work with Yuri Geller, among other horrible human beings, and study uh, study in giant flaming quotes <laughs> uh, psychic phenomena and go on Johnny Carson. Well, they, they make them up and then they say Yeah, right. Yeah, it's not an either-or. And so they, um, uh, they have their little uh, pretend group, which is like churning through government money, and then they have uh, these sort of remote viewers who are taken in and fed and housed by the CIA and given money to do remote viewing. And sure enough, if you were being rewarded for something, guess what? You do more of it. So the CIA had this sort of, well, if you sort of look like, it looks like it might be a missile. I think that we should do that uh, type nonsense. Until finally, William Casey, who is a knight of Malta and therefore is a inoculated and older, better woo-woo, <laughs> says, we're not doing this nonsense anymore. And they shut it down. Over the huge objections now of the entrenched psychic warfare bureaucracy, the army finally just gets tired of Colonel Channon because they're like, you know what would be better if we were an army devoted to obliterating things? That's really more of our skill (laughs) set. Is this on brand? So thanks, but no thanks. And they shut down Channon's program. And finally, the CIA manages to get their program turfed, I think, in in the 90s. It's finally up to uh, the Clinton administration to, at at the last... In installment, just stomp on the dying embers of skin eight. Now, uh, there is a school of thought, I should just parenthetically say, that one of the reasons that the military-industrial complex, uh, the CIA specifically, got behind SDI was not just the access to giant tranches of money and not just the belief that you could make an anti-ballistic laser, but the fact that if the Soviets are going to prank us with psychic technology, let's prank them with anti-missile lasers. And sure enough, that worked. <laughs> so, you know, in in a way, Grill Flame produced a mindset that produced the willingness to mess with the Soviets over SDI, which produced the fall of the Soviet Union. So, in Crowley's terms, <laughs> if magic is changing the conditions of the world by exercising will, the CIA's magic worked. So this was government-funded chaos magic. Exactly, yes, and therefore much more, more expensive, expensive than magic. the real kind of chaos magic. So the, uh, the, psych- the psychotronic programs all shut down in, in 93, pretty much. The armies had shut theirs down in the 80s, um, I think around Grenada, actually. And the, um, uh, and the CIA shuts theirs down in 93. And then they all go into the private sector, because that's what happens. And there is a great graphic, which I cannot find right now in these primitive conditions, showing the horde of quote-unquote independent psychic warfare groups and study groups that just poured off, you know, hived off by the uh, amount of money and and wasted research science that had gone into this. Um, And it just kept getting... So if if you are playing a a Delta Green game and you're like, oh, well, Majestic's gone. I wonder what happened. Hey, here's what happened. Everyone who ever had a Majestic clearance set themselves up as a consultant on the unnatural and billed out at a million damn dollars a day. Uh, it, it's just mind 
boggling. And, it, and the, the great thing is you can look at something like this and say, well, this is clearly malarkey. No matter who you are, this, it's not like, right. well, I think that there was a real solid public policy argument for this. You can just see this as a case study for what happens when you pour a trillion dollars on something. It wasn't a trillion dollar program. It was only a multi-billion dollar program. But it's still uh, a, uh, an instructional example of what happens when uh, the, the military-industrial complex really puts its mind to something. In this case, the something being putting their mind to something else. So speaking of segments that could then turn into entire segments, right. sometime we're going to have to get to the segment that what happens in your Delta Green game... Stays when, in your Delta Green game. Well, well, <laughs> obvs. Uh, but uh, what happens when the player characters discover that there are all of these highly paid independent contractors into the supernatural? It's like, wait, why aren't we doing that? <laughs> yes. Why? Why, why are we working for Delta Green when we could be... Uh, working high, for Magic Blackwater. Exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, which, by the way, lo lovely concept, Magic Blackwater. Magic there Blackwater. Uh, we may have to revisit this, <laughs> this. in an upcoming uh, segment of this podcast, which has just come to an end. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Grain Press. Asphagel. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Share magical verbena leaves with such patrons as... Fred Kish. John Kingdon. Lewis R. Evans. Noel Warford. And Ross Ireland. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.